Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we talk about challenges to faith, challenges to believing in Jesus. And we can perhaps come up with many difficult circumstances, trauma, trials. They can be challenges to faith. Past experiences in our lives can be challenges to faith. Perhaps, perhaps the memory of, of past sins in our lives can, can be a challenge to faith in Jesus. And, and for some people, the, the Bible is teaching that, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, would and did suffer and die on the cross is a challenge. It makes it hard to believe in Him. It doesn't make sense to them. For others, it's the, the doctrine of Christ's resurrection, the stumbling block to faith. And for some of us, perhaps it's a misunderstanding of what faith is. There can be all these so-called challenges to, to faith, true faith in Jesus Christ that we can see in our lives. And, and that can lead us, or it can at least tempt us, to, to justify, to rationalize, to excuse unbelief. That's what many people do. They come up with all kinds of reasons why they, they don't believe in Jesus. It happens in the world, but it can happen in the church too. Maybe you are here this morning and if you were asked, do you believe in Jesus, you, you would say, well, well no, I, I don't. I'm not yet trusting in Him. Maybe you have no interest. Or maybe you're, you're sitting on the fence, as it were. It could be here, too, too that you, you are here, and I, and I hope many of you are here trusting in Jesus, but you, you find still that you struggle. You, you have this, this unbelief that is mixed so often with it. And you can think of all the challenges, all the, all the things that make it so hard to believe in Jesus. You think of all kinds of, of reasons. But our text this morning, congregation, Luke 22, verses 66 to 71, really turns everything around. You see, in our text here, Jesus is in court. It's early on Good Friday morning, the night before he was betrayed, he was arrested. But now he's in court. He's, he's brought before the Sanhedrin. This is a, the supreme court of the, of the Jews in that day, a religious supreme court. Seventy men about it altogether. And he's in court here and he's facing their unbelief. But you know, he doesn't talk about their challenges to faith, does he? He actually does the opposite. He challenges their unbelief. And sometimes we need that, congregation. Sometimes we need that. Perhaps more often than we think. He challenges their unbelief and he does that while he's in court. And that's really what we want to see and learn this morning from our text. Our, our sermon is not going to be focused so much on the sufferings our Lord Jesus experienced, although it will touch on them, <clears throat> but rather it's, it's focused on what he does and what he teaches us, even in the midst of his sufferings. And so our theme with, with God's help is the Lord challenges unbelief in court. First of all, he exposes unbelief. Secondly, he points to his glory. And thirdly, he confirms his identity. The Lord challenges unbelief in court. First of all, he exposes unbelief. We see this in verses 66 to 68. 
Luke tells us that there that as, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. What's happening here? Well, Christ here is, is he's suffering again. Luke tells us in our passage something of what Jesus experienced in the high priest's house after he was betrayed and arrested. He, he was not only denied by Peter, but he was also mocked and beaten and blasphemed by the men who held him. But that's not all that happened that night. If you look at the other gospel accounts, uh, we, 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 we see also there that the religious leaders of the Jews had questioned Jesus already, already then, at least once, probably, probably twice. They had already asked Jesus to tell, him, to tell them if he was the Christ, and, and he had. You can see that in Mark and, and in Matthew. And that had been enough for them already then to condemn them, because they didn't believe. They didn't believe he was who he, he, he said he was. But the problem was those nighttime tri- trials, they were not sufficient. They were not legitimate. To make their condemnation of Jesus look legitimate, a trial by the 70 members of the religious council had to happen in the day. And that's the trial that Luke is telling us, telling us about here in our, in our passage. But what happens in the, the trial is very striking. Jesus, he turns the tables on them, as it were. The, the accused becomes the judge, in a sense. He doesn't give them the answer they, they want to hear, at least not immediately. After all, he'd already told them. He had already told them that he was the Christ. But now, even while he's in the midst of suffering, he exposes their unbelief. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. If I tell you, you will not believe. You see, Jesus knows they're not interested in considering his answer. He knows that they're prejudiced against him. And he exposes that. He he uncovers the reality of their unbelief. That's the problem, he says. The problem is not that you don't know whether I claim to be the Christ. The problem is that you don't believe that's who I am. You don't believe I'm the promised Messiah. You don't believe I'm the son of David. You don't believe I'm the Savior. You don't believe I'm the king, the, 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 the king who will deliver his people. You don't believe. And you won't believe even if I tell you. Jesus exposes the reality of their unbelief. And doesn't that highlight for us, congregation, doesn't that highlight the injustice, the injustice Jesus experienced? His trial wasn't a fair trial. The religious leaders were not interested in giving him a fair hearing. They weren't interested in the facts. They weren't interested in the evidence. They didn't care whether he fulfilled the Old Testament promises about the Messiah. They didn't care about the miracles he performed. They didn't care about any of that. They just wanted him to say that he was the Christ because then they could take that and they could say to the Roman rulers, he, he says he's a king, you need to get rid of him. They wanted to condemn him. They weren't interested in believing him or in trusting in him. Just imagine, imagine if, if it was you in court. Imagine yourself having to go to court and be treated that way. Imagine that the judge or the jury asks you to hear your claim, but, but there are, you know that they're already determined to not believe it. How unfair, how unjust that would be. And yet, that's how the religious leaders treated Jesus. But let's, 
Let's not be so quick to cast stones. Let's not be so quick to condemn the religious leaders. Because the same thing can happen today. The same thing can happen here. It is perhaps the way the religious leaders treated Christ. Is that perhaps the way you are treating him? You might not say it the same way, but, but how do you come to church? How have you come to church this morning? Have you come willing, willing to believe in the Lord Jesus? Willing to believe that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior who is willing and able to save you? Have you come willing to trust in him, to submit to him? Or have you come with your mind already made up? That you won't believe. That you will reject him. Are you here maybe just because you have to be here? Or because you want to look good in the sight of someone else? Or maybe you say, no, no, pastor, I'm, I'm here because I want to be. I'm here because I'm seeking. I'm here because I want to know. I want to believe that Jesus really is the Christ. That he is the Savior for me. But I'm just not there yet. Okay, but why not? Why not? Hasn't he told you? Week after week. Hasn't he told you in his word? Hasn't he been brought before you? Hasn't he shown himself to you? Hasn't he shown you his beauty and his glory and his all-sufficient grace? Yes, but I, I, I need something more. I, I, I need him to tell me personally. But hasn't he? Hasn't he told you over and over again? Yes, but can it really be true? Is Jesus really the only? Is he really the only and is he really the complete Savior? How, how can I know for sure? Maybe you would even say, I, I'm, I'm praying. I'm praying to Jesus. Art thou the Christ? Tell me. But could it be? Could it be that he has? And the problem the reason for your indecision, the reason for your sitting on the fence, the reason for your lack of faith and submission is not him, but you. Could it be the problem is that you will simply not believe? Could it be the problem is that like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you don't want to give up your power. You don't want to give up your control. You don't want to give up Well, you can name what you don't want to give up. Jesus exposes the reality of the council's unbelief. But he also exposes the stubbornness, doesn't he? The stubbornness of their unbelief. When Jesus says to the council, if, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go, he actually uses the strongest negative possible in Greek. Children, maybe you can tell me, how would you, if you wanted to say no to something or that you're, you're, you're not going to do something in the strongest way, how would you say it? Maybe you would say, I'd never, ever do that. Well, that's what, that's what this really means when Jesus says, he, he says, you will not believe. He says, if I tell you, you will never, ever believe. And if I also ask you, you will never, ever answer me, nor let me go. In other words, the problem is not just unbelief. It's stubborn unbelief. It's settled unbelief. It's determined unbelief. Decided unbelief. Jesus here is exposing that. He's exposing the stubbornness of the religious leaders. The stubbornness of their unbelief. But again, 
is that so unique to them? Isn't it the reality, congregation? And don't the scriptures teach us that apart from the Spirit's work in our hearts, we are just as stubborn as them? Don't even we who are are believers by grace find sometimes that unbelief still stubbornly clings to us and even mixes with our faith so that so often we we find ourselves like the father of that demon-possessed boy in in, in the gospel accounts who who pleaded with Jesus for, for help And when Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible, and he he cried out with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You see, congregation, the reality is that left to ourselves, we are just like this religious council. The reality is that left to ourselves, none of us, none of us would ever believe in Jesus Christ. No matter how many times we read that he is the Christ, that he is a Savior, no matter how many times we read it in the Bible, no matter how many proofs he gives, left to ourselves, none of us would ever trust in him. That's how sinful, that's how depraved we are. We need the Spirit of God to work in us, to soften our hearts, to take the veil away. And the wonderful thing is, the wonderful thing is that Christ willingly suffered. Yes, he even here, he was suffering, he was suffering in order to send that Holy Spirit to work to remove the veil from our hearts and to grant and to give initial repentance and faith and increasing repentance and faith to people who are so full of stubborn unbelief in and of themselves. Congregation, it's a painful lesson to learn. It's a painful lesson to learn that we cannot, we will not believe ever left to ourselves. It's a humbling lesson. But we need to learn it. We need to learn it, not just once, but over and over again. Because even as believers, we still struggle. We still struggle with unbelief at times. We say we believe that Jesus is the Christ. But then a trial, a test comes. And we find ourselves crying out, at least inwardly, if not outwardly, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. Tell me. As if he hadn't told us and shown us countless times already. Haven't you been there? Haven't you been there? Or am I the only one? Oh, how humbling it is when Christ by his spirit shows us, shows us what this really is. Unbelief, sin. How painful that is to be shown. But how good and how important it is because it shows us, doesn't it? It shows us how much we need Jesus and how much we owe to him. And it makes us, at least hopefully, it makes us more watchful more on guard against that unbelief, and more repentant, more sorry for it. Because when we see it for what it really is, we see that it is, it is wicked, it is evil. And don't, Je- don't Jesus' words also make that so clear? Don't they expose not only the reality of unbelief and the stubbornness of unbelief, but also the evil, the sinfulness, the wickedness of unbelief? You see, it's not just that they won't believe him if he tells them, It's that if he asks them, they won't even answer him or let him go. Why? They won't won't answer him. They won't let him go. Because deep down they know the evidence would support his claim. They cannot deny. You see it in the, the, if you look back through through Luke, there's at least a couple of times when he asks them a question and they, they refuse to answer. Because they know, they know that he's right deep down. 
the testimony of Scripture, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his own wisdom and teaching, the testimony of the miracles he had performed, they all pointed to him being the Christ, being the Messiah. But the religious leaders don't want to admit it. They don't want to accept the evidence. You see, they had made up their minds. They had made up their minds to get rid of Jesus, the one who was full of grace and truth, the one who always went about, the Scripture says, doing good, the one who had just healed the ear of the high priest's servant a few hours earlier. They had made up their minds to get rid of him as soon as they could without making themselves look bad. Do you see the wickedness, the sinfulness of their unbelief? How could they do that? How could they not believe him? How could they not trust in him? How could they not follow him? Those are the kinds of questions we're, we maybe want to ask when we read this. Congregation, then we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind ourselves the reason this passage is in Scripture is not for us to look at these religious leaders and ask how they could do that. The reason this, this passage is in Scripture is so that we would look at us, look at ourselves, and ask ourselves how we can do that. How we can be so unbelieving. You see, the Lord here, he's included this passage in Scripture to challenge our unbelief, my unbelief, your unbelief in court this morning. And he's calling you, he's calling me to believe. But you say, it's so hard. It's so hard to believe. How can I believe? How can I persevere in believing? How can I grow in believing? Well, that brings us, that brings us to our second point. You see, the Lord Jesus here challenges unbelief not simply by exposing it, but by also pointing to his glory. He points to his glory. We see this in verse 69. Verse 69, when he says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. What a statement Jesus is making here. Remember where he is. He's in court. Not as a judge, but as a prisoner, as a criminal. His face has been bruised from the slaps and the abuse he received during the night. And now he's here in court and the question is hanging in the air, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he knows, congregation, he knows that the verdict has already been reached. He knows that these men are out to have him killed. He's exposed their unbelief. He knows that answering their question will only seal his doom. And yet he does. But he does it. He does it in a way that challenges their unbelief even more. He points to his glory. Here in the court of the religious leaders, he, he as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, he has no form or comeliness. The jury sits and they see him and there's no beauty in him that they might desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. But then this one they are intent on getting, getting rid of. He makes this stunning declaration. Pointing to the great change. Pointing to the great change that is about to happen. Hereafter. From now on. Very soon. Shall the Son of Man. Sit on the right hand. Of the power of God. Jesus is referring to himself. As he's done throughout the gospel. Referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's a, it's a title from Daniel 7. 
a title of everlasting glory and honor and power. And he's pointing to that glory as a glory that he is about to receive. It is imminent. He is about to sit on the right hand of the power of God, the seat of honor, the seat of almighty power, the seat of judgment. And so, congregation, he's giving, he's giving such a loving warning, a loving warning to these religious leaders. Be careful. Be careful, he's saying, what you do. For though I have given myself into your hands now, it's as if he's saying, for you to do as you wish, I'm about to receive the greatest glory, the greatest honor possible. I am about to be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now I am your prisoner, but I will soon be your judge. Now I am in your court, but you will soon be in my court. Now you have power over me, but I will soon have all authority and power given to me. God is about to give me an everlasting, a worldwide dominion and kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Oh, then be careful. Be careful. There's a warning. Be careful what you do with me and to me. Do not continue in unbelief, but believe. Believe in me. Believe I am the Christ, Jesus is saying. Believe I am the Savior of sinners, even sinners like yourselves. And bow your knees, bow your knees to me. That's the way to life. That's the way to blessing. The Lord Jesus pointed them to his imminent glory. He was giving them an urgent and a loving warning. And congregation, that loving warning still goes out. Still goes out to unbelievers today. It's even more urgent. It's even more urgent. Because Jesus is even now sitting at the right hand of God. He is reigning. He is ruling. If you are an unbeliever here this morning and if Jesus means nothing to you, you need to really think about that. You need to meditate on that. You see, it's easy to think that believing in Jesus, fleeing to him this very day is not really that important. It's easy to think you can do it when you're older. It's easy to think that way because you and I can't see Jesus with our eyes. We can't see him sitting at the right hand of the power of God. And so it's easy to forget about him. It's easy to think he's not worth your obedience. He's not worth your submission. He's not worth your faith. He's not worth your time and attention. It's easy to think of Jesus just like the religious leaders saw him. As weak, as powerless, as a nobody. But he's not. God's word repeatedly tells us that Jesus not only died, he not only suffered and died, but he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he is sitting on the right hand of God the Father Almighty even now. He is ruling, he is reigning and he will also one day come and return to judge all people. The word of the Lord in verse 69 has been fulfilled. Well then be careful. Be careful what you do with him. Don't continue to refuse him. Don't continue to reject him. Now he is willing and able to receive you. He has been given that power to save you. Yes, even his sitting on the right hand of the power of God is is demonstration of that. Because he sits there as one, as one who has suffered as one who was willing to be rejected by those religious leaders and who was, as one who was willing to be numbered with the transgressors. 
as one who is willing and who was made sin and a curse in the place of sinners. That's why God has highly exalted him. That's why God has given him the highest honor possible, the honor of sitting at his right hand as king because he gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And he calls you, he calls all sinners, come to me. Beloved, Christ is challenging us. He's challenging us by pointing to his glory a glory that he has even now this very moment to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ. And also, dear believer, this isn't just for unbelievers, but also for believers to persevere in believing in him. Remember where Jesus is, beloved in the Lord. Remember where he is. He's at the right hand of God. Then then be diligent. Don't, Don't become discouraged. Don't let unbelief get a foothold. We need that warning. It's a biblical warning. Read the book of Hebrews. Take heed, brethren. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. O congregation, let us challenge each other then, shall we? Let us challenge each other in the walk of faith to not give up. Let's point each other to the glory of of Christ. Though we cannot see him with our eyes, he is now, even now, sitting on the right hand of the power of God. And he will return one day. So let's encourage each other. Let's challenge each other to submit to him, to love him, to trust in him, to live for him every single moment. The Lord Jesus pointed, he pointed them to his imminent glory. But he also pointed them to his divine glory. You see, for him to claim to be the Son of Man, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, was essentially a claim to a glory that belonged only to God. Here I invite you to look with me at, the, at Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Because this is the prophecy that Jesus here is alluding to when he uses this title, the Son of Man. Daniel 7, and I want to read with you verses 13 and 14. This is, this is what Daniel here, he's seeing this in a vision and he, he describes it for us. And he says, I, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, that's God. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should, should serve him. In other words, the Son of Man here, he's receiving divine honor, honor and worship that belongs only to God. And then it goes on. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Congregation, only one being in the universe has a kingdom like that. It's God. It's the Lord. But here in, our, in Daniel, it's, it's the Son of Man. And that means that the Son of Man is divine. He is God. And so children, young people, when Jesus says here of himself, when he says that, that hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God, what is he saying about himself? He's saying that his approaching glory 
That glory that he's pointing to, the glory that he's about to receive, the glory of sitting at the right hand of the power of God is a divine glory. He's saying that he has divine power. He's saying, he's saying, Jesus is saying he is God. How serious it is then. How foolish it is not to believe in him. Not to trust in him. You see, to refuse and reject Jesus Christ is to refuse and reject God himself. Congregation, Jesus is pointing us to his glory. He's pointing us to his glory in his word this morning so that we would know and be assured, even as we spend these weeks focusing especially on his sufferings and death, so we would know and be assured that he is worthy. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy. He is worthy of everything. Why? Because he is God. There's no excuse. Jesus makes it so clear. There's no excuse for not believing in him. But maybe you still say, I just need something. I just need some sort of confirmation. I need some reassurance. Well, the Lord Jesus, he gives confirmation. He gives it in our text, as we see very briefly yet in our third point. He confirms, he confirms his identity. You see, the religious leaders, they understood what we've just been saying. They understood that by referring to Jesus, referring to himself as the Son of Man, who was about to sit at the right hand of the power of God, Jesus was essentially making himself equal with the Father, equal with God. That's why they asked that next question in verse 70. Look with me at verse 70. Then said they all, that is the 70 members of the council, Art thou then the Son of God? You see, they knew the scriptures, congregation. Do we know the scriptures? They knew that in Psalm 2, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One was also called the Son of God. And Jesus, by pointing them to his glory, was essentially saying, that's who I am. But they want to make sure. They want it to be clear. And so they ask him this question, art thou then the Son of God? And what did Jesus answer? Middle of verse 70. And he said unto them, ye say that I am. Jesus here confirms his identity. And on the one hand, congregation, what a clear confirmation. What a clear confirmation is this. It's important here to understand what what Jesus' answer means. What he's really saying. He's saying, as as J.C. Ryle rightly paraphrases it, he's saying this, Ye speak the truth. I am, as ye say, the Son of God. How do we know? Well, Well, the reaction of the leaders makes it very clear, doesn't it? When they heard the Lord's answer, verse 71 tells us that they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. You see, they understood. They understood that Jesus was confirming that he is the Son of God. Clearly. But ultimately, congregation, ultimately it's not just a clear confirmation. It's a searching confirmation. Jesus confirming his identity here is meant to search us. It's meant to stop us. One commentator 
I think rightly, Dale Ralph Davis, he, he compares the, this account of Jesus confirming his identity. He compares it to the experience of sliding off a roof and getting your pants snagged on a nail. If you've ever done a, done a re-roof, you, you probably know what he's talking about. Those nails that stick up after you pull the old shingles off. They snag, they can snag you. And that's what Jesus' confirmation here is meant to do. It's meant to snag us. It's meant to stop us in our tracks and make us face the question that Jesus once asked his disciples. But who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Do you say he is the Son of God or not? You know, the religious leaders, they said it, but they didn't believe it. They had him killed for claiming that title. It was, what, it was the excuse they wanted to accuse him of blasphemy. They saw him as stealing that honor, that glory that belonged to God. They had the Son of God killed because they refused to believe. But what about us? What about us? Do you say Jesus is the Son of God? And do you not just say it, but do you believe it? And do you not just say it with your words, but with your life? That's how you know if you believe it. Do you trust in him? Do you submit to his rule? What about when his rule, when his will crosses yours? What about when it means denying yourself? What about, me, what about when it means crucifying your idols? What about when it means forsaking worldly sinful pleasures? What about when his rule means loving and serving others? What about when it means not gossiping about others, not slandering others? What about when it means honoring authority? It's a searching, isn't it? What about what it means seeking to live in obedience to the commandments of God, not just some of them, but all of them? Do you submit to Jesus as the Son of God? Even then? Do you see with me how searching, how searching is Jesus' confirmation of his identity? It's asking you the question. It's asking me the question. What are you doing with him? Well, the religious council, we know what they did. They rejected Jesus. They rejected his challenge to their unbelief. They confessed that they had heard it from his own mouth, but they remained unbelieving, at least, at least then. And now through God's word, congregation, we also have heard Jesus confirm his identity through his word, from his own mouth, as it were. We have heard it, him challenging our unbelief in the court of our consciences. What is our response? Is it to get rid of him as soon as possible? Like those religious leaders. Or is it to humble ourselves before him? To confess our sin and confess the unbelief that he is exposed in our hearts and lives and to repent. Congregation, that is what our text is calling us to do. It's calling us to believe, to believe in Jesus. Yes, it's calling us to take even our unbelief and our sin to him, to him who was condemned in court when it should have been us. To him whose blood, the blood that he shed on the cross, cleanses 
from all sin. That's what our text is calling us to do. Well, then let us go to him. Let us trust in him. Let us submit to him. Let us rest in him. Yes, also in all of our doubt and temptation. Jesus declared, he is the son of God. What need we? What need we? Any further witness? For we have heard it from his own mouth. Amen.